Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the March 24, 2015 edition of Ask a Leader. Happy Nowruz to all our Persian friends, and that includes someone in our studio today. It's spring break around the UCI system, and showing up on her precious spring break leave is my guest today, special guest co-host, Helen Kirkby. Welcome to the show, Helen. Thank you. I'm glad you're here, and I want you to tell us a bit about yourself, what you're currently studying, and uh, you know what, what your broader interests are, Helen. Um, well, I'm a freshman at UC Berkeley. I'm, I was born in uh, California, so I grew up in Irvine, um, but I'm studying political science at Berkeley right now. Um, and I'm interested in politics and social movements, so that's what we're going to talk about today. And Exactly, exactly. Well, fine. Well, now Helen's going to join us to take measure with UCI sociology professor David Meyer and student Parshan Kosravi to examine student activism in California and beyond. So no movement will be left unturned, folks. Then turning the second to the second half of the hour, executive director Bo Glover will get down, dirty, and subversive about the new preschool at his environmental nature center, Newport Beach. We do this topic right, adults will rethink the messy and get out of the way of a broader tactile education of our youth. Don't go away. We'll be right back after a short station break. Hey, everybody. Thanks for staying tuned. Welcome back to the show. Helen Kirkby's and my first guest for the show, our UCI professor of sociology, among other things, the David Meyer. He's professor of sociology, political science, planning policy, and design. And his previous appearance on the show addressed the Occupy movement uh, around the country and in, uh, at Occupy Orange County. His general areas of interest include social movements, political sociology and public policy, peace and war, and social justice. He is most directly concerned with relationships between social movements and the political context in which they emerge. The most recent of the six books that he's published is The Politics of Protest, Social Movements in America with the Oxford University Press. He completed his BA in literature at Hampshire College and his PhD in political science at Boston University. Also joining us is third year political science student Parshan Kozravi. He is the organizing director at Associate Students of UCI Office of the Executive Vice President involved with the 60 by 16 initiative. Parshan and his team work on setting the foundation to increase student participation in the 2016 election. That's going to be part of what activism looks like, folks. Both Professor uh, uh, Meyer, uh, Professor Meyer is online with us right now, and both David, uh, and both Parshan and Helen Kirkby join me in studio. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Good morning. Good, good morning, everyone. And Helen. Good morning. So that's this is like a like a microphone check. Well, we are all taking in a heady ray of 
of retrospectives of activism, 50 years since the march in Selma, taking up voting rights and civil rights, the peace rallies around college campuses and Berkeley had their beautiful 50th commemoration of really a real mobilization going on. That And then the retrospectives of documented um, in various uh, films lately of the uptick of the Black Panther movement then, the feminist movement achieving reproductive health goals and choices with a range of contraception, including legalized abortion on demand. Students were in the thick of that. So here we are, everybody. We're now in 2015. David, so many issues and movements in which to address those needs. David, tell us. David Meyer, which movements interest you the most in the way students have been recently mobilizing? Well, students have been very brave and out front on the um, on what we on immigration, and that's particularly been true in California. And students have been actively engaged, so episodically, on protecting their access to education on issues like tuition. And we're just starting to see nationally a campaign of graduates about student debt. And I think that's a very important issue for students and for America. So we expect to see more on that. So uh, we've got my co-host here, Helen Kirkby and and Parshan. So uh, uh, just tack on as you uh, hear, uh, as you want to comment on that. Have you uh, your own, let's say, your own observations of the we'll talk about the financial student finance uh debt um and related well on the uc berkeley campus there was a movement called fight the hike um and it was about fighting the fee hikes that were recently passed by the uc board of regents um and there was a sit-in in in a building called wheeler hall that lasted almost a week i think where students would stay the whole like days nights um to protest these tuition hikes so i think that was a very clear example of students getting angry and passionate about something that they care about. And uh, what's the, the sort of next step? Is there, is there a strategic uh, aspect that you're, you're fathoming from this? People are saying, okay, this is round one, but we got to, is there going, do you sense a sustained effort in the works planned? Well, there were definitely also uh, other movements on other campuses. I know that UCLA and UCI definitely had other student protests against these fee hikes. So I think a coalescing of all the UC campuses um, together would be the best chance that this movement has for being a sustained movement. Yes. Okay. Parshat? Yeah. Um, I mean, definitely, yeah, there's a lot of um, issues going on. There's a lot of um, protests and movements going on. We all remember the tuition hikes that happened last quarter and um, throughout the the past year really has been... um, one of the main topic points of a lot of students and a lot of student activism going on. We recently, um, I think it was like a week ago, where we had students going all the way to um, the regents meeting and doing a protest there. And so it's uh, that those are nothing new, and we see that happening, um, unfortunately. And that just shows how much um, students' um, education is in danger at all times, and we constantly have to um, be be. Um, working um towards the um okay uh, the yeah. the um I'll put yeah so the movements constantly have to be happening um so for instance um one of the issues that has just happened and we we were aware of it actually um last week as um 
part of the United States Student Association is that um, the GOP currently is proposing a bill um, to cut Pell Grants. And uh, that's a bill that's going to be cutting um, Pell Grants by $30 billion this year and by uh, another $120 billion next year. And that's obviously something that is very threatening to students' future. And um, so we are currently organizing towards that and figuring out what to do with that. And again, the tuition heist and at UCs uh, continue to exist, and we continue to work on that as well. So, yes, David? Well, the tuition thing is actually really, really, really important, as uh, Helen and Parshan are, are saying. But there's an odd politics to it, in that conservatives in the state also oppose the tuition hikes, and they say, just take it out of the university, just find places to cut, 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 put more courses online, um, you know, increase enrollments, to stop taking out-of-staters, just say, you know, find ways to cut, 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 cut. And I think that the students are really concerned about keeping tuition down, and as they should be. But the other part of the story that has to come in is, what are you paying for? What's this degree going to be worth when you get to the end of it? Why should your education be watching a bunch of videos on YouTube when other people got to, when a previous generation got to sit in a classroom with a professor? And uh, I think that's got to be part of the story here. Okay. Helen? I completely agree with that. I think that if there is a raise in tuition, then there definitely has to be direct correlation of a raise in the quality of your education. And I think a lot of students are worried that they're not going to see that. And that's why they're protesting. So I guess some are caught in a bit of a double bind there. Uh, if they're because of the, the debt they're trying to limit, they're working a job while they're going to school. So mobilizing is a bit of a problem for them. So it's uh, this financial thing's getting them coming and going, getting you guys coming and going. Right. I mean, it's like a downward spiral, right? Like the more students, it's like the more tuition is getting imposed on. Today, we see students not only having to go to traditional classrooms and going through education, but also now we see students having to actually work as a part-time job, maybe some, some students actually full-time jobs to be able to even pay to go to university. And then as a result of that, we see less and less ability of students to mobilize and actually have their voices be raised. And when we get to issues such as the proposals that constantly get get sent to UC, um, for instance, the governor's proposal to, you know, um, the governor wants the UC to make the education for three years. So he wants students to graduate within three years, or he wants the classrooms to all the GE courses to become online or um, general, education. general education courses. And so all these issues that really, um, it's attack on students' education. And we can't really mobilize around that and talk about that that often because as students, honestly, students don't have that much time and ability to do that anymore. And it's very interesting as we saw that happen during the tuition um, increase protest where we had um, just like, you know, a couple hundred students coming out and protesting over something that they were really passionate about. And I think a lot of other students were passionate as well, but they didn't actually have the ability to be able to come in and join the movement. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with students having to work a little bit for spending money when they're in college. As a uh you know, there's been research on this, and students who work 10 to 15 hours a week tend to do even better in school, have better grades, more engagement, because they have to be organized. Uh-huh. We've gotten to the point, though, where a summer job and 15 to 20 hours doesn't make much of a dent in student expenses. And I have lots of students in my classes who are working full-time plus. Wow. And something has to give when they're spending that much time in funding their education. 
and it's it's not a good thing for education. It's not a good thing for students, and it's not a good thing for the future of California. And I guess that when we, I was alluding to the, these 50-year anniversaries, student finance uh, to the the whole loan um, problem was not a student debt was not going on 50 years ago. There were there's a pretty manageable level of uh, tuition was hardly at, uh, anything and the fees were pretty low so it's a this is an entirely different financial pictures for students to be reckoning with well who does education benefit i'm of the opinion that an educated workforce and an educated citizenry is good for everybody it's good for me even though i'm way done with school and uh Right now, it's being framed to students as the education is all about you. You have to be able to find it and fund it. You have to be able to fund your own retirement. You have to be able to fund your own health care. And uh, it's a huge amount of pressure, and it makes life um, extremely difficult, highly pressured, and we're suffering the consequences of that. So, David, you've got then students that you said are working full-time. Plus. Uh, plus. So can can you talk to what it's like with them? Uh, it, their performance shows that, though. Um, I, I mean, you can ask um, Helen and Parshan, but students make calculations about where to spend their time. They figure out what it takes to get the grade they need to get in a class, and you know the very best students are ruthlessly strategic. And you know maybe that's not such a bad thing, but everybody's not the very best student, so. Students don't have the same amount of time and dedication to put into reading when they're dragging themselves to classes after having worked a job as a monitor or as a night watchman or working in a restaurant. And again, it's not everybody. Students have ver there's a range of student experiences, but it's much, much harder for the large number of students who are expected to contribute to their own education. Parshan, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I was nodding as you were mentioning, Professor. I. I totally agree i couldn't agree anymore um i i used to work uh at, for 35 hours a week job and going to school and it, it was it was tough um having to go to work and you know after that having to study until you know 1 2 a.m and then waking up at 6 a.m to commute all the way to uci and again go to classes and you know those are the part of the things that it's kind of missing from the, the definition of education today. It's the traditional definition did not include these things. And so that's like oftentimes I, I'd like to um, argue that our education system today is kind of outdated. It doesn't include those aspects of student life today, such as having to work these full-time jobs and having to take care of family members and having to um, go through all these things really that usually in, in the past at least I'd argue did not influence or affect students' lives as much. Um, and so, so like, there's a lot of elements that goes to that as well, which is, um, I think, what why it's interesting um, when our kind of political uh, spectrum does not does not really um, go over that or take that in, uh, into account. For, for those of you who've just joined us, you're tuned to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. My special co-host today is University of California Berkeley freshman Helen Kirkby, and our guests are David Meyer, UCI professor of sociology, political science, planning, policy, and design, and third-year student Parshan Khosravi, talking about the state of student activism, uh, largely uh, right now as it's uh, predetermined by the 
the financial responsibility with which students are saddled. Well, I, I, we that looms over all of the other topics that we're talking about. So I, I want to move into, uh, since there is, we're talking about a major uh, a time uh, crunch in uh, managing all of these demands. Let's talk, and I'd like to open up, David, how we, um, how we inform ourselves, guides our thinking and mobilizing. What do you make of the current trends in media consumption, book reading, uh, in terms of political literacy, priority, and goal setting? Hmm. Um, I'm always surprised what students know and what they don't know. They, Open that um, up all the way, David. Almost invariably, they're way better at gathering information on the web than I am. But it's often decontextualized, so there's like a stream of history that's kind of um, lost to us. And, you know, I always ask students in my classes to name civil rights heroes. And usually, you know, in most classes, most undergraduate classes, I get two or three names, Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks. And they don't know a lot about the history of struggles and the like large number of heroes of the past who have fought to get them some of the advantages that are now being taken away from them. So um, student information is um, interesting. So they know lots of stuff, but but it's often decontextualized and spotty. And it's our job as educators to try to put that information in context, and it's also my job as a teacher to learn how they get information, which is not through a daily paper. How do you guys get information? Yes. Okay, it's my co-host, Helen Kirkby. Where, how do you get your information? Um, well, I'm taking a lot of political science classes, so I definitely get a lot of information from the professors and from the readings, the <laughs> extensive readings that we do in class. Um, social media is another huge factor, I think, to get these movements, you know, movements that can be epitomized in a hashtag. Um, so that's definitely a way that ideas can get shared very quickly among young people. I think also people take voting cues or political cues from friends or individuals in their community who um, are known for being politically active. So they'll look to more informed people to kind of do the shortcuts for them and make the decisions for them. So it's the it's the me immediate participants in it versus the forebears of give name your activity your name your movement. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean it's, it's sort of like an Marshawn? evolving thing, right? Like, um, it, yeah, there used to be a time, right? You know, like. I don't know how often long ago it was, you know, newspapers and like radio stations for a lot of movements. There, a lot of the protests and movements in the past have been resulted from uh, radios. And um, and then we are, we're moving towards a more modern era now. You know, we used to have Facebook and Twitter and all these things. And there's now I'm not going to lie. Some of those things like even Facebook is getting outdated because, you know, there's new things that are constantly coming in and evolving. And it's interesting to see how... Um, creativity comes into this piece when when we see often um, certain folks in again politicians and um, organizers around the, the country when they uh, are using different me means of being able to mobilize students um, 
tweetivism, as I called it, is is one of the very famous things right now that is going on. You know, um, because it's such an easy way of quickly accessing to all the targets um, in in any movements, and and so that's one of the things that's being very very much so utilized. But um, I can't tell you in ten years from now what's gonna happen and how is this whole thing is gonna change because honestly, in on a day to day basis, it is constantly changing and um, moving up. David, I, while you're th- responding to that and all, I'd, I'd like you also to answer what the uh, with a decontextualized source of information. And, and I know you're you're not in uh, in uh, cognitive sciences, but I'm st- I'm going to ask you to try to make it some kind of a, a, an analogy, a, com- a, a, a analysis here. Is do with decontextualized information? Does that um, how does that weigh in how can we recall remember and put together and activate mobilize uh, from that kind of source of information is that decontextualized information might make it difficult for us to have all those associative properties about uh, about data so that we can recall it and apply it later like when we're in a discourse with someone we're trying to uh, persuade someone we're trying to uh, persuade them to act or persuade them to uh, to how to vote or that kind of discourse? Well, I think that the, uh, the key challenge is to recognize that what we're told is impossible is actually not impossible. Okay. So that, you know, when you're told, for example, that the state is in a budget crisis, therefore there's not money for your education, it's worthwhile to know what share of student costs used to be borne by the state. Yes. It's worthwhile and that's information that doesn't come out in, you know, a tweet. No. And so understanding what's possible which requires like some attention to the history and some attention to some comparison what's what what's going on in other places. And Sometimes there are things going on in other places that are encouraging, and sometimes there are things going on in other places that are discouraging. And higher education is maybe the key battleground in all of this. I mean, we're really dependent upon student leaders to lead for all of us. Absolutely. I wanted uh, to acknowledge your blogging that you have on politicsoutdoors.com, and you talk about that heavy lifting, the, the sustained efforts in this. And I'm looking here, you're, uh, I'm looking for your quote here that uh, changing the world, even a little piece of it takes a long time and it's never one thing, but activist efforts can play a critical role in changing the conditions in which governments and businesses make decisions. And you, you talk about that heavy lifting that's in your blog in March. So uh, part of the heavy lifting is voting. Well, some of the lift. If voting done properly is a lot of heavy lifting. You got to know, and you got you got to know in a primary because in California it matters because you're weeding out all the candidates for the general election the way it's structured now. So, I'd like for both uh, Helen Kirkby and Parshan Kozravi to talk about your experience of uh, voting participation individually and with amongst your peers. Helen. Um, well, I know I registered to vote before I even turned eighteen. Um, And on the Berkeley campus, there are 
actually tables all around campus with students uh, with voting uh, registration forms for you to fill out. And people actually knocked on our dorm room door. They went door to door throughout the building in our dorm, handing out voter registration forms, which I think was a great initiative to get people registered. Um, I think it's very important to get people registered. In some countries, registration is actually just automatic, so people don't have to register. And I think the fact that people had to register is a huge hindrance to student participation, just because a lot of college students have moved out um, and they're moving around. You know, your first year and your second year, you might not be living in the same address in college. So you have to change your registration each time. And I think that's, that's a big roadblock for student participation at the polls. Um, so I think students just have to kind of tackle that and address that and just make sure they get registered to vote every single election so their voice can be heard. Now, I know Parshan's uh, voting registration initiative, it's been a sustained effort. When uh, Helen, and I'll, I'll let him talk to that too, but Helen, um, were, mm -hmm. was that campaign for registration, was it at the, the cusp of the general election last fall? Because you, you were on campus just before the general election occurred. But, or was that going on as soon as you were rolling in in August to take classes? Yeah, so that was um, in about the month or two preceding the 2016 midterm elections. So I think it was great that people were getting people to mobilize for even the midterm elections because... Especially. It's not even. It's always. It's still a vote. Absolutely. Yeah, because it's, it's a shockingly low turnout for young people for midterm elections. It's the overwhelming demographic of people is uh, the older demographic for midterms. Yeah, and, and um, on that note, I, I do want to mention, um, I mean, well, as you mentioned, one of the things that we unfortunately can't do on campus right now is the door-to-door -door knocking and being able you to... You cannot? We cannot do that. That's, Why is that? Um, because the way it works is based on the dorming uh, policy that we have is it's uh, kind of like we, we can't do dormstorming. It's what the term is called. Dormstorming? Dormstorming. Oh, dormstorming. Okay. Yeah, so there, therefore that's what the whole concept of knocking on doors because um, I, I know we, we've been meeting with folks from housing and they've been very um, helpful in working with us and we're hoping to achieve that be able to do that for um, this coming year is that a security matter though you can't go in um, or the, what's are there the process the reasons um, that they have mentioned in the past is because if they open it up to all students all student organizations and everyone's constantly going to be knocking on the door so it just becomes a hassle for students who are living in those hard dorms and like that that's an issue of like housing because they want to have like you know the whole um, security in their house not being ha have to be con constantly you know knocked on the door but you know there's not that's not just the only problem you know there's many 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 things in the process and that's what 60 by 16 is really trying to achieve is trying to take it uh, take out those kind of like um, walls in the middle of students being able to re get registers I mean you know news comes in every day for instance yesterday I heard um, from folks uh, our folks from Oregon that uh, Oregon is now the first state to have um, automatic registration to vote when students go to get their driver's license or any any person in general and that is the th type of things that we want to have in California um, I mean in California we will be having a th I believe certain 2016 we will have day um, uh, elections day water registration so water registration deadline as uh, some of the folks might not know or might know it right now is about two weeks prior to elections so um, after that two weeks we can't really register anyone else to vote and usually one of the things we see is a lot of students tend to have that last minute oh my god I want to register to vote but it's too late because it's already been uh, past that two week span and so that is I'm, I'm really hopeful that that's going to help a lot with registration but you know there's a lot of these things there's lack of really concrete online water registration there is the dorm storming there is um class you know like we need to kind of have a, a better 
a relationship with our faculty and with the staff to be able to really promote that. Um, I think when voter registration comes around, the entire school's priority should be voter registration. And that's how we can have an effective student body that's educated and that's aware and that's registered to vote. Mm. David, Meyer? Most politicians pay attention to the people who vote. Um, you know, that, that's a you know, basic tenet of democracy. And I kind of believe that's how it works. So the idea of like getting students to uh, to represent their own interests is really critical, and I respect students for doing this. What's not being said now is there are contrary efforts also going around all around the United States to keep people who don't vote from showing up at the polls, to make a student ID um, inadequate ad- inadequate identification for voting. This is happening in North Carolina. This is happening in Pennsylvania. So, you know, I applaud what the students here in California are doing, but there, you know, there are countercurrents that have to be uh, addressed as well. Yes. The, uh, there's the aspect of coalescing. So what I'll do is ask two questions in, in one stroke here is the extent to which Helen envisions a Bay Area coalescing and Parshan, a coalescing in Southern California. And uh, the I think after student finance, I think the, the next most pressing, I think high priority is m- for students to mobilize around the climate change issue. You, you have nothing but skin, bone, tissue, every tissue in this game, guys. So what do you envision is in the works with both your strategies for coalescing and whether climate change is going to be, you're feeling the percolation of that as, as a greater and a deeper priority amidst your demographic, your cohort. Um, well, in November of this year on the Berkeley campus, over 100 students were rallying at an ASUC uh, meeting about climate change, um, and they were demanding more sustainable energy practices. And they were part of a group called Fossil Free Cal, which is a branch of a group called Fossil Free UC, um, which is all UC campuses. So I think that is an example of uh, students on one campus getting active, but also being part of a larger group and a larger network of an issue that's very pressing and an issue that really this generation needs to kind of take up the torch on because it will be affecting their futures. And that's a coalescing all UC system-wide for divestment in fossil fuel industry. We had one passed in um, UCR1 as well in the Legislative Council. Uh, We uh, voted to divest from fossil fuel. And, uh, you know, I I wasn't going to bring up the topic. I'm not going to bring up the topic, but I'm saying there are other issues that got a lot more attention in the press. I don't think the public can appreciate that that step was taken, Parshan, on this campus. So I, I guess I want to challenge you to, to get in the media's face about covering those really productive steps you're taking. So, And, and David, did you want to sort of wrap up with that double-edged question about the coalescing opportunity and the, the priority of... Uh, mobilizing around the climate change? Well, topic. I think climate change has been interesting because activists have found something to focus on that, that really is a good target for students, which is the divestment of their campuses. And incredibly, they've made real great progress so far with uh, campaigns to divest in, at uh, Stanford, for example, where they made an announcement of divesting from coal, if not all fossil fuels. So that's a good start. You know, the uh, thing that we don't know in advance is what issues are going to take off. And the, you know, activist students keep trying things. 
and we're always surprised when something that we plan on actually works. And so, yeah, let's all stay tuned. Right. I, Helen mentioned in preparation to, that the Black Lives Matter was that that took off. That that got a real uh, maybe more people turning out than you'd seen in any other situations. Mm. Helen. Um, yeah, that was definitely in my freshman year. That was the hugest movement I got to witness. And it was, I think it, it took a, a little bit of a negative turn um, in terms of it turned into rioting in, in the Berkeley area where shop windows were smashed and traffic was stopped. And I think that that was an example of a protest that turned a little sour. Um, that could have been uh, something that, that had a very good cause to you know keep police brutality in check. Um, and I think it's important that students don't lose sight of the real goal, which is political change, and don't just go to a protest just to riot and just to experience that. Well, I want to give everybody a chance to let the audience know where they can continue to follow you. I, I've suggested already that David Meyer can be followed. He re, uh, vigorously uh, keeps <clears throat> posting on politicsoutdoors.com. It's politics outdoors is one word. Uh, anything in addition to that, David? I think that's plenty. <laughs> that's plenty to read. And are you teaching any courses this spring? This spring, I'm not teaching anything new. Okay, no. so you'll be putting more on the blog, I guess. God, let's hope. Let's hope. And Parshan, following you, where do listeners go? Um, so for to follow me, I, I'm, uh, I have a section in ACCI, the student government's um, webpage, where you can find me and contact me through there. I also um, un- occasionally write for New University, the newspaper on campus, and um, and try to, you know, talk about some of my views and certain political issues. Um, so you can always um, contact me directly if you have any questions, and you can also um, read about some of the articles that I've read, that I've written, yeah. Okay. And Helen, to, how, to follow you or to follow what you're following, what would you like listeners to have? Um, I don't have a website, but I just, for anyone tuning in, especially students, I just want to urge them to register to vote. Make sure you register, and that's the first step, and then just make sure you show up at the polls um, for every election, including local ones. And uh, I'm not totally done yet. I just want to give our students one last, uh, an opportunity here to tell listeners what is, what are those benefits that you've experienced with your activism, so people know how it feels and not to be deterred. What what goes on for uh, you? What benefits? Sure. So I can tell you a little bit um, about what is what has been currently happening. Is um, you know a lot of people were were very hesitant on uh, about the tuition movement last last quarter and talking about how you know it doesn't really it isn't going to really change anything. It's already a done deal. And you know the protests happened. You see, continue to protest that and. Through, through uh, continuous pressure, now we see that you know. Uh, but but tell, tell us what you experience. I mean, you. I, I want you to. I. You learn. You. You're. You're. You're meeting people. You're. You're learning how to. Or I mean, just. Just cut to that chase. What you're. What you're getting out of it, so people know. It's. It's. it's there's everything in it for them to get stepping up. There, there definitely is. I mean, um, I can't. I can only tell you. You know, it's. It's the whole thing is a really. Uh, there's a lot going on constantly. There's a lot of excitement and also a lot of uh, pressure uh, of being able to do something. But when you see that happen, when you see that result happen, such as when you see the news coming out and saying that uh, Pr- President Napolitano has decided to hold off on the tuition increase until at least three months for further negotiation, that shows success. Okay. That shows the progression. And that's when it really is the moment where you realize all of that activism is actually leading to something. Thanks. Helen? 
Um, the term that I've heard used to, to cover this idea is expressive benefits. So that means just the, the non-material benefits of participation in, in politics and uh, in activism. So there's a lot of rhetoric about, you know, doing your sense of duty or, you know, your patriotic duty. But it, it really is true that if you represent what you believe in and you support a cause, then you, you really do get a good feeling out of that. Great. And I, I'm going to close with uh, one of David Meyer's postings. I think this is one of the most recent ones. As anyone in education knows, what students learn isn't what teachers teach. <laughs> so so you're learning a lot when you're in, in the expressive and, and um, organizational sense. So I want to thank David Meyer, sociology poli-sci, urban and urban planning design professor at UCI, and Parshan Kosravi, third-year student at UCI, talking about the state of student activism. Thank you uh, for being on the show today. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. We'll stay tuned, and we'll have um, El- Helen's going to stay with me. And uh, this is a little Noru's theme, and I'm hoping that uh, it's a new year for uh, students thinking, rethinking what they want to um get how they want to get involved. So when we come back, Helen and I are going to be talking with Bo Glover. He's the executive director of the Environmental Nature Center, rolling out a new program targeted toward preschoolers. We'll be sure to probe whom else could benefit, so don't go away. Welcome back to the show. My special co-host, Helen Kirkby, and I have as our next guest, Bo Glover. He's the executive director of the Environmental Nature Center, a center whose enterprise I've covered on the pre- a previous show. Bo's own enterprises include trail building, habitat restoration, and uh, leading educational tours. Bo assumed his current position, the executive director of the Environmental Center, 20 years ago. Under Bo's leadership, the Environmental Center, ENC, we might call it for short later, has grown to become the area's foremost authority on ecological responsibility, sustaining uh, sustainable practices, and environmental education. Bo is past president of the Association of Nature Center Administrators and California Society for Ecological Restoration. Among his other credits are chairman of the city of Newport Beach, Castaways uh, Park Advisory Committee and service on the Environmental Board of the City of Huntington Beach. A lead accredited professional that's leadership in energy and environmental design. He serves on the board of directors of Orange County Coast, excuse me, Orange Coast River Park, the Orange County Creek Network Advisory Committee, and the Newport Mesa Schools Foundation Grants Allocations Committee. He uh, attended Villanova, and he'll tell us where he got his uh, undergrad degree, and he'll tell us where he's currently uh, going to school uh, as we welcome him to uh, Ask a Leader Bo. Hi. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's good to have you on. I just like to always plot the dots for people who hear listening on the college radio station where everybody who is a a force to be reckoned with all the different paths of education. So I just want to know your little education background there. well, I have my degree in, in natural science, but I'm currently continuing my education in the um, sustainable management program at the University of Wisconsin. My experiences in um, 
sustainability and and building with the lead platinum building that we have here at the Nature Center piqued my interest in continuing my education in um, getting a degree in sustainable management. So I'm um, still going to school and probably will my entire life. So um, it's always wonderful to continue those educational pursuits. Absolutely. Continuing education is what our invigorated existences are about. Well, I want to get into what the Environmental Nature Center's new preschool program is. It's the focus for this, although I know there's so many really terrific enterprises. I think it's a perfectly fine time for us to consider how we learn and how we teach. Uh, personally, I've witnessed too many well-intentioned but they're rather uh, ignorant parents that are stifling their children's education as well as their own experience of the great wide world in their avoidance of getting messy in or avoiding altogether the physical environment. Let's talk about that, Bo. You're having to sort of undo that as soon as people walk in at the Environmental Nature Center and experience your your setting that doesn't exist mostly in the suburbs. Uh, that's that's so true, and the, the the disconnect that children today have with the natural world is something that that we fight on a daily basis. And when you you get children outdoors, it just promotes that healthy lifestyle and um, increases their imagination and sense of wonder and. Um, the outdoors and as you said getting getting dirty and messy and and getting that hands-on experience with nature is what we're all about here and will certainly be a big focus of our preschool okay so as we we're saying in the built suburban environment nature's true settings are really at a, at a real premium so you're bucking some other sort of insidious cultures we're talking about that uh, so how I'd like you to consider therefore you you might want to design a, a, a course for the parents first, kind of loosen them up so they they get they let their kids get down to it. They they say, hey, I I get that my kids should be involved in this program. Uh, that's true, and we're we're hoping to hold a, a few open houses real soon to really kind of introduce the parents to the philosophy of the school. And of course, you know, the school is going to have your your traditional preschool curriculum but with a, a major twist, and that is that most of the lessons are going to be taught outdoors. And um, getting parents involved in the process early and, and letting them know that if their kids come home with uh, some mud underneath their fingernails, um, it, it's all been a part of the educational process that they're going through. And um, parents are, are really, really receptive to this. And I think that the interest in our community from, you know, all facets will, will just be a, you know, tremendous for the school. So, Well, I, my co-host today, Helen Kirkby, is a freshman at UC Berkeley spending valuable time of her spring break here. She's co-hosting in the show. And so I'd asked her to consider what you reflect back on. You'd say you're the one that's closest to the sandbox in this uh, section of the program. So I want you to reflect on what kind of experience you remember uh, getting exposed to. Um, well, as a Were kid, you allowed? Yeah, I, there was some outdoor time, you know, at, at recess during um, elementary school. Um, as a kid, I definitely enjoyed playing outside. I think it's uh, very important that kids have that time to kind of have this unstructured play so that they can 
not just be thrown with thrown at uh, TV or games or things like that so they can just kind of make their own games. Um, so I think it's, it's definitely good for imagination. Yes, and I, uh, for both of you, um, Bo, I don't know if you saw the recent New York Times uh, op-ed piece. It was called Free Range Parenting. And the, the I think largest takeaway was the children got to get they got to have that tether length and so they know how to negotiate the i the things around them in the environment know how to na- navigate that and develop those all important personal skills so the free range parenting is part of a maybe part of the template the free range in the the natural domain that you're trying to provide in this preschool well i can certainly remember as a child and of course i grew up in a different generation but the 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 direction from my parents were come home when the street lights came on and i was out there exploring the natural world turning over rocks in a stream to see what i could find climbing trees digging holes to china right. um and and those experiences i can directly attribute to my life path and my career choice and my appreciation for the natural world and my connection to it and um, the experiences that you have, be it alone or in a group setting out in the natural world, are so important to that that conservation ethic and that connection with the earth that um, we're looking to foster. It's so important. Well, you've hit on a lot of things I want to make sure we covered as far as uh, what the pedagogical goals are in this preschool about the first we can talk about there's there's literacy about nature. People know uh, the role that uh, bugs, spiders play in the our uh, in larger environmental systems. I mean, you're, you're going to be teaching that kind of literacy. Uh, and they might also know about uh, knowing what those plants and animals are about they they know what benefits there are and uh, why uh, and not to be afraid of them right that's part of this, the pedagogy absolutely and and the, we look at the preschool as as having uh, the typical um, teaching philosophies of of any preschool as far as 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 the academic lessons go but the wonderful thing is and the difference is is that the majority of those lessons are going to be taught in the outdoors so you're going to be using spiders as an example um and and trees and leaves and kids are going to be able to feel touch and experience those things and the impact that that's going to have on them will will just be tremendous so you're talking about that tactile piece and a, a manner of speaking what kind of cognitive benefits do you see in your preschool program that has in these tactile experiences I mean, I think there's some literature out there that's saying there is context, there's there's traction with the tactile connection in the learning process. And so I, I it seems like it's a real um, a clear connection there in what you have to offer. So maybe we could talk about, too, that consumers who understand the natural setting make more informed choices. So this on a particular level, you're leading them through the earliest uh, understanding of the 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 impact of some of their very basic consumer choices. Are you not in your program? 
Uh, very much so. Uh, showing that there are choices to be made out there, and what choices there are. The the whole um, philosophy um, behind our our green building and the building of the of the preschool will be. Uh, very green, very, a lot of sustainable features um, built into it, and um, the children are introduced to those choices um, as far as the how the, the the food of the of the preschool. We're going to have an organic garden there. Well, there there are choices to be made while you're grocery shopping. Do you go with the organic choice? No, no pesticides. A healthier choice. Or do you, do, you, do you go the more traditional path? And all of those things are, are laid out there as examples um, to students and adults that visit the Nature Center in general. One example I can think of in our building here, and we have a window wall created in the wall that exposes the insulation of the building. Ah, okay. Our insulation is built out of 85% blue jeans, and 15% cotton, and it has the same R value as traditional fiberglass insulation and the same fire rating, but it's built sustainably. It's built using the scraps um, from, from the manufacturing of blue jeans and, and a renewable resource of cotton. Well, that's a choice that you can make to, to maybe spend a little little bit more money and and go with uh, a choice that's better for the earth, better for the environment, um, and providing those those little examples um, to students young and old alike is a real goal here at the center. For those of you who've just joined us, my co-host in this program today is Helen Kirkaby. She's UC Berkeley freshman to, and on her spring break, giving us her valuable time and also giving us our valuable, his valuable time as our guest, Bo Glover, Executive Director of the Environmental Nature Center here on Ask a Leader at KUCI 88.9 FN in Irvine and streaming all over on the web, worldwide web at KUCI.org. Well, Bo, it, with this particular preschool, now when does it begin? We're looking at opening um, in January of 2017. We're oh. currently uh, it's a couple of years away. Um, we do have we do have a a vacant lot at this at this time. We're we're fundraising to uh, construct the building itself, and we're looking at opening it in uh, a little less than two years. So it's it's very exciting for us as we go through the the planning and the architectural designs and uh, a big component of is, is not only that there is a building aspect of it because some of the lessons of course will be will be done in indoors but there's a large nature play area that's associated um, with this property and it's connected to our full five acre campus that we have here um, so there's a lot of, of great planning a lot of uh, inspiration um, from from local teachers and of course our naturalists here on staff um, so it's a real exciting process that we're going through right now so the topical part of your being on the radio today is that folks take away is they can contribute in terms of financial uh, ways in terms of 
volunteering with giving some of their sweat equity to helping build this institution so everything runs beautifully right on time January 2017 um, I and I wanted while we're talking about this pedagogy just another point I wanted to bring up earlier was are you uh, looking for your enrollment for what we call neurotypical to maybe developmentally delayed children are you looking at a very broad spectrum of students who could benefit from this preschool Absolutely. Um, now, our, our age demographic will be the three to five year olds. Um, you know, your your pre K, but we're looking for a very diverse uh, student population. We're actually going to have um, uh, at least twenty percent of our students will be a scholarship based program, and um, we're really looking to to get a very broad spectrum of students. Um, and it just, of course, adds to a to a beneficial academic setting for them. And Bo, does that scholarship include transportation to the school? Um, we haven't de de defined, you know, all the all the criteria in regard to our scholarship right now. But as we get a little bit further along in the process, we're in the process right now of hiring a, a preschool director, um, and so we're doing a search right now um, for that position. And um, once that person gets on board, we'll try to fine-tune those, those scholarship um, criteria and uh, benefits of that um, a little bit further down the road. So folks that are maybe wanting to, now that they hear about this opportunity, at eCenter.org, your website, they could perhaps uh, pursue that employment opportunity. They certainly could, and then, of course, any anyone who would like to contribute financially to yes. the project, we have a wonderful matching grant opportunity where every donation will be matched dollar for dollar by an anonymous donor um, in our community who has really identified the, the benefits of this for our community, um, and that's up to $3 million will be matched by this one individual, and um, it's a very exciting for us, and I think something that uh, the community will, will just get behind. Well, I'll put all that contact information up on the podcast summary, and I'm, I'm going to wrap uh, have to wrap up. So I, I want to thank you, Bo Glover. Environmental Nature Center Executive Director, and uh, this this is an opportunity to telegraph what's in the works. You've got lots of time be between now and then when the the school actually starts, but there is precious little time for volunteers to hurry and contribute on all levels with institutionalizing this. I think it's the most rare program for preschoolers to enroll in anywhere in probably, let's say, the L.A. Basin, Orange County. Yes, and I encourage people to come over and visit the Nature Center. This is just one aspect of many, many program offerings we have for our community. So come on over and visit. We'll give you the grand tour. It's a wonderful place to, to come and experience uh, nature and uh, see what we do here. Okay. Well, Bo Glover, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. All the luck, and when uh, you get closer to the next kind of major event, hope you'll come back on the show and, and uh, roll that out, launch it on us. I'd be happy to. Thank you so much, Claudia. Okay, thanks a lot. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, that is our wrap for our programming today. I want to thank Helen Kirkby for coming on the show. She had lots of things she could have been doing otherwise on her spring break. So what did you think as we close, Helen? Any, uh, any observations? Parting um, shots? Well, thank you for having me. I think it was a, it was a great experience. First foray into public policy radio. Um, I think... 
definitely it's important to remember what we talked about in the first half of the show in terms of youth activism. Um, and I think that can definitely also translate into Bo's efforts with the Nature Center um, and volunteering your time there. Oh, okay. Well, I thank you so much for spending the time coming all the way this way. So as we wind down the show, I want to say that Richard Matthew will return to these waves. He's the director of UCI's Center for Unconventional Security Affairs with more new projects the world round. You have no idea what a coup it is to nail this intrepid and enterprising academic down for an interview. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Mm-hmm.